Hey, there's nothing more important in the world uh, than a good idea. Wait a minute. No, there's one more thing. Uh, there's one thing more important than a good idea. Uh, implementing, a decision to implement a good idea. That's the most important thing in the world. Wait. No, there's one more thing. I'm sorry. Uh, a good idea is a really good thing. Implementing is a really good thing. The third thing, the really most important thing, I should say, is love. Uh, if you have a good idea and you make a decision to implement it and you do that out of love, that's powerful. And that describes Jesus. We've been asking the question, uh, what was Jesus like? Uh, we've looked each week at some aspect of what he was like, and it's been really interesting and refreshing and inspiring to look at who Jesus is and what he's like. And we see, especially uh, this weekend, as we anticipate Easter, that Jesus came into, into the world with an incredibly good idea uh, to save humankind. And he made a decision to let nothing and no one stand in his way to accomplish that. And he did it out of love. Uh, you've probably heard that, that, that well-worn and, and much-loved verse from John 2, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, would have life now and forever. That to all who receive Him and believe in Him, He gives the right to become children of God, sons and daughters by faith. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Jesus, uh, in His ministry, uh, Proclaimed the kingdom of God, he taught about it, and he demonstrated it. And we see it in the gospel, these four stories that describe what Jesus came to do and who Jesus, uh, that he's doing that. And at a key point in Luke's gospel, chapter 9, at the very end of that chapter, we see Jesus coming to a unique point where he's been in the north of Israel primarily. And it says that as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He made a decision. He made a decisive move to move now toward Jerusalem. And so here we are, chapter 9, Luke, he makes that decision. He's about 50 miles away uh, from Jerusalem in an area called Samaria, which is now, we call it the West Bank, part of the West Bank. And so in the next 10 chapters in Luke's Gospel, you see him moving toward Jerusalem. And, and what was the Jerusalem he was moving toward? And what was he moving through? What was Israel like? Well, in the first century, there were... Uh, five million Jews in the world. Think about that. Five million Jews in the world, and two million of them lived in, in Israel. Uh, today, there are 13 million Jews in the world. And in Jerusalem that Jesus was moving toward was the center of Israel, and about 80,000 people lived in Jerusalem, maybe two-thirds of them Jews. And though many years before, this is, this is you know, 30 A.D., that Jesus is, is doing this. And you might say, well, I thought he lived to be 33. Wouldn't that be 33 AD? Uh, the way the dates were, Jesus was born somewhere between 4 BC and you know, zero. So somewhere in there, around 30 AD, he's, he's making this move. Well, in 1000 BC, that was kind of the high point of Israel. King David is on the throne. He's united politically, militarily. Uh, they, they basically dominate their own country. And, and then following him, his son Solomon builds this magnificent temple. So really, the apogee, the, the highest point of that developed uh, culture and, and uh, country was at that moment. And yet, between that point and now Jesus making his way into Jerusalem, uh, the, the, the Persians 
have dominated them. The Babylonians have dominated them. The Greeks have dominated them. They dominated themselves again for a period of time. And now the Romans dominate them. And this, this Jerusalem to which he is making his way is actually more beautiful and magnificent than it was at the highest point in the kingdom. Because a man named Herod, who is half Jewish and half Idumean, and all 100% Roman in the way he functioned, had taken this mountain on which the original temple was built. If you had gone to Jerusalem, then you would have seen a mountain, the highest point in Jerusalem, which was the highest point in the area. That mountain, you can't see it anymore. What you see is this massive, massive amount of, of uh, property, 35 acres of property that, that constitutes a big platform that Herod built over the mountain. 35 acres. you know how big Petco Park is? And you're saying, I'm glad you asked. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'll start with Qualcomm. Qualcomm is 15 acres. Now, there's hundreds of acres of parking and all that around it, but actual Qualcomm is 15 acres. Petco is 18 acres. The Temple Mount that Herod built around this mountain that, that you see when you come into Jerusalem to this day, and the Dome of the Rock sits on it, the Dome of the Rock has a rock inside. It looks like a pebble. I mean, it's a small rock. That's the top of a mountain. Herod built that 35-acre thing and then built, rebuilt the temple that Solomon had built and had been destroyed and kind of rebuilt. Herod rebuilt that thing to such a magnificent level that it was one of the great wonders of that world. And so Jerusalem now is an epic, amazing city. Maybe the feeling you have when you go to uh, New York or London or Barstow. You know, that massive sense of... <laughs> just making sure you're listening as I'm talking about all these, all these numbers and, and details. Well, if you're on a full day at Petco, standing room only, it's 46,000 people. On that 35-acre area in Jerusalem, you can fit 100,000 people. Now, you know the Romans dominated the Israel through which Jesus is walking and, and the city of Jerusalem to which he is going. And they had 3,000 soldiers in the country. And that sounds like nothing, doesn't it? For a country of 2 million plus people. 3,000 soldiers. Most of them hung out at the beach in Caesarea, which would be like La Jolla. And 500 of them who got their short straw were in Jerusalem. <laughs> because they didn't want to be there. But they had a massive fortress right next to that massive temple mount that I just described. Fortress Antonia. Herod's mentor was Mark Antony. Remember, he had the, the girlfriend and uh, Aunt Cleo. And so um, he was filled with soldiers. And these soldiers watched everything going on. Now, when Jesus was born, 4 BC, it turned out that you know, Herod's temple was in its glory, had just been built, amazing. People were awed and astonished by it. Some were really ticked off about it, though. Because it was so Roman, they thought, this is an absolute desecration to rebuild our temple to look like a Roman temple. And on in, and in top of that, he put an eagle in it, which was a Roman symbol. And so some Jewish uh, students got so upset with this eagle that, they, that they, they created a little riot, a little protest. And the Romans came in and, and killed them. The people in the city were so frustrated. Some of the leaders were on top of that temple mount and they started throwing rocks at the Romans. That is not a good thing to do to a Roman. If you were ever around a Roman soldier, never throw a rock. If you're in Rome and see the Swiss guards in the funky outfits, you can throw anything you want at them because they, they, they can't catch you, you know. They're wearing tights, you know, and, 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 and silly outfits. But these guys were serious, serious warriors. The 500 guys called in reinforcements. They crucified 2,000 men. As far as you could see, 
out of Jerusalem, there was a road lined with writing, suffering, dying men. And he said, let that be a lesson to you, not to mess with us. And so as Jesus moved toward Jerusalem, it was a tinderbox of conflict. This was the high point of the religious year, to go to Jerusalem from wherever you lived. 250,000 people will crowd into that city, and maybe more. They're going to bring with them uh, their you know, kids and family members and friends. They're going to carry food and animals with them to get through that week. They're so excited to be going into the city. It's a tinderbox of potential explosive behavior. Why? Because the Romans know that at any moment, somebody could get the wild idea that now's the time to get rid of the Romans. And so it was a kind of a lockdown moment. Now the people who were in charge of that Temple Mount were called Sadducees. And they were a very small group of people who were in cahoots with the Romans. And they didn't like them, but they didn't like their own people because they were the money game and the power game. They didn't even necessarily believe in God. They, they believed in the system. There was another group of people, six, I mean, this is, we're talking about hundreds of these people. Then there's 6,000 of these people called Pharisees who were, who were teachers of the law and, and they're serious about their faith. And they're the ones that are really concerned about Jesus, but they don't like the Sadducees, the Sadducees don't like them, and both groups don't like Jesus. There's another group, 4,000 people, who are ready to, to take it over and burn it down. Because they want to take down that horrible temple and build a temple that they think really honors God. These are the zealot type people. Now the Romans are aware that all these people are going to be in the same city at the same time in close quarters. The Sadducees don't want it messed up because they realize this is a, a major ATM on a big platform. The Pharisees don't want it messed up because this is where we worship the living God. The Zealots want it messed up because they want to get rid of the Romans and the, and the Sadducees. And Jesus comes into this. Can you imagine what it was like? Intense, to say the least. And so here we see in, Roman, uh, in, in Luke chapter 19, this triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. Verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem is a high place. Going up to Jerusalem. And when you come out of the desert, out of Jericho, that area by the Dead Sea, through the desert, and you wind your way up to Jerusalem, these brown hills, uh, you finally get to a couple small villages, Beit Ani or Beit Fagi. Beit Fagi is house of figs. Beit Ani is house of suffering. These two small villages, the suffering, misery village, is where people were taken care of who didn't have much. Beit Fagi was a place where they would, of course, they would harvest figs. But both of them were significant in terms of the location because it was on the other side of a mountain over which you walked, a hill. And when you got to the top of that hill, you got to see Jerusalem. And it was a, it was a mile and a half walk. The significance of that is that on a Sabbath, you could walk 1.5 miles and still be within the Sabbath. And so poorer people would live there. And they'd still be able to get into Jerusalem for their Shabbat, for Passover. And this is the, the villages through which all the pilgrims came. This massive, massive sea, river, a flow of humanity, all trying to get into the city to celebrate a Passover. And so it says, Jesus goes ahead uh, to Jerusalem as he approached, uh, we call Bethphage, or Bethphage, and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent to his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. So uh, Jesus had prearranged this. 
They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Now, remember, they're coming over this hill, up a hill, and when you get to the rise, the top of it, what we would know now as a Mount of Olives, and even then they called it that. Not many olive trees on it now, but it, it looks right across a small little valley, and it's that mountainside where Jesus went on his last night. That's where Gethsemane is, the wine press. It's an interesting place to walk through now. And you, you look across a small valley into this magnificent city. If you've ever been at the El Tovar Hotel and walked out and walked to the edge of the Grand Canyon for the first time, it's a whoa moment, right? If you've ever driven up Highway 41 and as you come through that tunnel into Yosemite, you screech on your brakes, you pull over, you get out and you go, oh my gosh. And then you scream at the kids not to get too close to the edge. But it's so magnificent to see it, right? If you've ever been to the opening ceremony of the Olympics, if you've ever been at Times Square on New Year's Eve, if you've ever been to a Super Bowl, a World Series, a national basketball championship, you know the energy, the excitement, the hysteria of that moment. Well, all that is coming together. And meanwhile, remember, it's a tinderbox. Nobody wants anything to go awry for different reasons. They all want it to be really uh, peaceful. And so it says this, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, right, the brow of the top of that hill, and they all see Jerusalem, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And you can imagine what's, what happens. You've been in these situations where there's lots of people and somebody starts cheering or chanting. And what happens? It's electric. Everybody picks it up. And here comes Jesus on this donkey with all his disciples saying, this is it. And people say, that's the Jesus we've heard about. Whoa! And they all start cheering, and, and it's loud, and that, that thunderous, that thunderous you know, exclamation of praise rolls down across that little shallow Kidron Valley and into the city where the Romans are watching, and where the Sadducees are watching, and where other thousands and thousands of people are watching, and all of a sudden it looks scary. So some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, this is dangerous! This could be mistaken for a revolt, a riot, or worse yet, they might think you're who you are. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. You see what I'm wearing today? This is my own version of Project Runway. It's a very short runway. but. <laughs> White pants. When you come into Jerusalem, that, that beautiful limestone, it glows. It shines. I, I've come over that hill many times, and I can tell you every time it's awe-inspiring. It just glows. John Muir called the High Sierras the range of light. When you see the sun hit the High Sierras from the east, it's, it just, it's awe-inspiring. When you see the face of Half Dome or El Cap lit up. And so likewise, you come into Jerusalem, it is so inspirational. The city of light. And yet Jesus came into that city and he saw the darkness in it. He saw the despair. He saw the hope mixed with a lot of hopelessness. He saw the oppression of not only the Romans but the Sadducees. He 
He saw the darkness of the people, and those people had no idea that the city of light that attracted them as he poured down that Mount of Olives, it was going to become a very dark week very quickly. And so Thursday and Friday, we'll reflect on that darkness, and Sunday we'll come back to celebrate the greatness of what Jesus accomplished. And so Jesus weeps over it. He sees that. And he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. See, the symbol of the donkey is he's coming in peace. A king would come in to a city, having conquered it, on a donkey to say, I've come in peace. I will not slaughter you. I will not abuse you and dominate you. I've come to bring you peace. But now, Jesus says, it is hidden from your eyes. You don't even see it. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Forty years when Jesus says this, the Romans in fact created uh, an embankment and an encampment around Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, they literally destroyed the city they killed as many people as he could and sent the rest off into slavery. It was left as a rock pile. They came and finished the job in 135 AD to the point that it was so decimated nobody lived there for a couple hundred years. Everything Jesus predicted came to pass. And so his heart was heavy. But well, we see that Jesus in Matthew's Gospel entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Why? Why? Because if you were coming in to worship God and you brought your little lamb to make a sacrifice for your sins and those of your family, to represent that lamb that was slaughtered when the people were led out of captivity by Moses. And on that night, before they, they, they left Egypt, they were instructed by God to slaughter a lamb, eat every part of it, take the blood and put it on the doorposts in the sign of a cross, a red cross on their doors. And to stay in that house. And that night, the angel of death passed over each house marked with the red cross. And so to this day, they celebrate this Passover. But now coming into the city and they make the journey up to the city and they see that overwhelming, intimidating, inspiring Temple Mount and the absolutely magnificent temple above it. 80 feet high in the place where they sacrifice these animals. Nothing like that they'd ever seen before, if this was their first time. And they took their lamb, and as they were going up to make their sacrifice, somebody said, oh, excuse me, excuse me. That's a beautiful little lamb, but you know what? It's imperfect. But thankfully, for your convenience, today only, we have a perfect lamb for you. Oh, but I can't take your money. I'm sorry, it's got a graven image. You know, it's got Caesar on it. But we can exchange that money for temple money if you just go right over there. And so they went over and they were robbed as they exchanged their money. And they were robbed as they bought this new lamb that looked just like the one they brought. That might have been the one that the guy before them brought. And they bought this overpriced lamb to make that sacrifice. And if they couldn't, they bought some overpriced doves. Doves were the cheapest thing you could buy. And that's what the poorest of the poor would buy. But they had to buy that temple dove. And so Jesus goes in and says, this is not right. You're making a mockery of my father's house. He says, it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Can you see the flashpoint here for revolution? 
and revolt. And the Romans watching this going, hmm, okay. Another wild man declaring his reign. And, you know, as they lean over looking, the Sadducees are saying, oh, dear God. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? Why are they so uptight? Again, they're, they're saying, oh no, we're going to lose control of this thing and the Romans are going to goof up our best week. But they didn't have the sense of children who said, Mom, did you see that? He just healed that man. Daddy, look at that woman. She was on her knees, pulling herself along the ground. Now she's walking and, and dancing. And that man, we know he's a man who can't see. He's seeing and praising God for it. They didn't have the sense of children to see what Jesus was doing. Confirming who he was and what he had come to do. They were more concerned about themselves and their situation. And so Jesus left them and went out of the city back to Bethany where he spent the night. Now early in the morning, Jesus entered the temple courts. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. Pretty much upset about what he had done yesterday. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, John the baptizer, who came proclaiming the kingdom of God. Thousands of, or actually hundreds and hundreds, and thousands of people streamed out of Jerusalem, down to the, to the uh, Jordan River near Jericho, to be baptized, to say, I want to follow the living God. I want to be ready for his kingdom. Everybody believed that John the Baptist was... Was, was an Old Testament prophet. We know that he's the last of the Old Testament prophets, the first of the New Testament prophets. But that one of the sons of Herod had him executed, which broke the people's hearts and made these Pharisees and Sadducees very happy. And so Jesus asks them this question. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Simple question. Which is it? They discussed it among themselves and said, Well, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they, will, they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. An attorney friend of mine says, If you're ever being questioned, simply say, I don't recall. I don't know if that's good advice or not. But that's what they did. I really don't know. Then Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. If you don't know that, then you won't know what I'm going to tell you. You won't understand it. And certainly you won't accept it. Well, now Jesus tells two parables. You know, a parable is a simple story with one main point. Lots of implications, but one main point. And so he asks them, he says, well, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. A rebellious son, dishonoring his father. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will serve, though he did not go. 
Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now this was not usually the analogy people would make when referring to the Pharisees. Oh gosh, you remind me of the tax collectors and prostitutes. But they're going ahead of you because they're higher. He says, for John, he's going to give the answer to his own question. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness. And you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. This is the darkness descending over Jerusalem. And then he's on a roll. Listen to another parable. I can hardly wait. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. Now in Medes culture, it's like saying, I'm sending you my heart. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. He's going to own all of this. It all belongs to him. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. As if this could happen. It's a whacked out idea. It's a ridiculous idea. A ridiculous idea made in a rash moment of bad decision with no love. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these servants, to those tenants? And they answered, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And it's interesting, saying, you got the answer right, but guess which side of the equation you're on. Right answer, wrong side of the equation. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew, because it was a parable with a very clear point, he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. What was Jesus like? Jesus was decisive in fulfilling his mission. He was determined, disciplined, and diligent. He had a good idea. He made a decision about fulfilling it, and he did it in love. Now, next Sunday, Easter Sunday, we'll celebrate his victory over sin and death, and we invite you, as we've said 
Thursday and Friday to reflect on how he accomplished it. But let me tell you how he accomplished it in terms of an attitude. Go look at all the actions. But let me tell you the basic attitude. The key to Jesus' success was receiving what he needed from the Father. Not my will done, but thine be done. Yours be done. Not my way, but your way, Father. He had made a decision. Nothing and no one would turn him from it, but he wept over the city. He said, if there's any way it can happen another way, be it. But, but your will be done, not mine. He relied and received on what the Father would give him. And that's true for us too. What do you think God is trying to give you to fulfill your mission? In the face of all the obstacles, all those difficult circumstances. God is working in us to give us what we need to do His will. Jesus one man coming into town on a donkey, not with an army, but an entourage, had everything he needed. Jesus and the Father were a majority of one. Jesus in you is a majority of one. And like Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians 1.29, we can say, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. That's your legacy, that's your birthright. So have you made that decision yet? Certainly the decision to follow Jesus, to receive Jesus, to belong to Jesus. But as and more importantly, the decision to say, I know you're my Savior, I submit myself to you as my Lord. I want what you want more than anything else. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. More than where you go to school, more than who you will marry, more than what career you'll take on, more than where you live, more than where you go, more than anything else in this world. With all those wonderful and important things that matter in this world to us and matter to God, this is the important decision. Because from this decision, everything else flows. In this decision, everything else comes together. Without this decision, everything comes apart. It's a decision to receive and believe what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing. It's a decision to learn his ways and to live for him all your days. A beautiful song says it this way. I have decided, I have resolved to wait upon you, Lord. My rock and redeemer shall not be moved. I'll wait upon you, Lord. As surely as the sun will rise, you'll come to us. As certain, as certain as the dawn appears, you'll come. Let your glory fall as you respond to us. Spirit, rain, flood our hearts with holy fire again. We are not shaken. We are not moved. We wait upon you, Lord. Our mighty deliverer, my triumph and truth, I'll wait upon you, Lord. Chains are broken. Eyes are opened. Lives be healed. Christ is revealed. That is the song that we need to sing. That's the song that Jesus puts in our hearts. That's the song of praise that wafted over that triumphant entry into the beautiful and heartbroken city of Jerusalem. That's the song that will waft over our world as we learn to sing it in His name. Lord Jesus, I thank You and praise You that You've given us everything we need to become sons and daughters by faith. Receiving You, welcoming You, believing in You, depending on You. We thank You and praise You for this incredible gift of salvation for newness and fullness of life, for a future and a hope. We thank you and praise you for all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.